Hey, what's going on, y'all? This is Free Me Podcast. Man, I got a special guest today, man. I got Mr. Chad Marks, author of Blood on the Razor Wire. Uh, Chad Marks has done 17 years, four months, and he's been home a month, right? Oh, no, I've been home eight months. I came home in uh, June 2020. June 2020, eight months. Okay. And you did 17 years off a 40-year bid. Yeah. So how did you come home early? What I did was I ended up filing a compassionate release motion. Um, and I was released on compassionate release. The judge found there were extraordinary and compelling reasons in my case. And it reduced my sentence from 40 years to 20. So I actually did 17 years, five months and 21 days. I was a jailhouse lawyer in federal prison. I actually wrote the first motion for compassionate release that ever won. It was the Conrado Can 2 case out of Texas. I had filed what was called a Holloway motion in my own case. And my judge said that this was an extraordinary case that deserved an extraordinary remedy. He used those words. Well, those words happened to be in the first step back that Donald Trump passed. So that kind of opened the door for me to file a compassionate release motion. I was eventually represented by former federal judge John Gleason. Um, he was the guy that prosecuted John Gotti when he was a prosecutor, then became a federal judge for 22 years. And he helped me. After my stuff was filed, he got involved in the case, and I ended up getting out of compassionate release. Mm. Mm. How did that feel, brother? Well, I mean, walking out of prison was, I mean, just to, just to smell the air and, and know that it smelled different, man, than what it smelled like on the other side. As crazy as that might sound, you know, when I walked out of that gate and heard a crack behind me, you know, it felt good, but I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. Would they come try to grab me in the parking lot? Was this a mistake? So I went to uh, the person that came to pick me up. I rushed to her car, Lisa Jacoby. She had worked at the Federal Defender's Office in my city for over 22 years, was an advocate for me. And she ended up coming to pick me up the second time because I was walking out three weeks earlier and the government had filed an emergency appeal that morning. And they mm. stopped me. I seen my family in the uh, parking lot. I was walking out. I was literally... I don't know, I'd say probably 50 steps at the most away from walking out of that gate. And they called on a walkie-talkie and said, hey, stop him. There was an appeal filed. Stop him immediately. So they stopped me from walking out, went back in, and three weeks later, I walked out. So I had that fear that anything could happen. You know, I didn't, I wasn't sure if it was real. Even when the gate closed behind me, I just rushed to the car and told her, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. So, man, it felt good. It felt good to finally be free. What you express, right, is is something that people just can't explain, right? You just can't explain that. It's it's like it's like when we try to explain a picture, right? It's like when we try to explain the Holocaust. It's it's like when we try to explain something that nobody can really just grasp unless you've been through it. That's some of the issue that I I've been out four years now, and that's some of the issue that I'm dealing with out here when it comes to relationships is, is trying to get people to understand really what I've went through, what I've felt. And unless you're in that pressure, unless you can feel that, that level of anxiety, that level of stress on you, right? You, you just can't explain that. It's, it's like telling somebody that you've done 17 years, right? To them, it's 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 17 years and, and, and they pass over it like it's nothing. They're like, oh, man, that's a long time. But 
let's put 17 years into perspective, right? What was the last thing that you bought before you went in? Like, what was, what was the last thing that you, you bought? The last thing that I bought, you know what? I think the, one of the last things that I bought before I went to prison was a sprint flip phone. Hmm. That's when the flip phones, the flip phones had just come out. So I bought a sprint flip phone, man. Um, I remember that phone and someone would call you and just the circle would be going on it with their number. And then I walked out to a computer that had a phone in it. You know what I mean? Right. So what year, what year was that? I went to jail February 4, 2003. 2003. So, so you and I are, are, are somewhat similar. So my, for me, I was the, the LG flip phone. Right. And the thing about it was, is it had the little number on the outside of it. Right. Yeah. This was the big thing. So so you didn't have to flip the phone open to see who was calling. You You could see the number on the outside yeah. and you could actually take a picture as a black and white picture. And you could take a picture with it and you could email it to somebody. This was the last phone. I just got this in maybe a month. And then when I went in, you could actually record for like 30 seconds. Yeah. So 2003. Right. And I want my listeners to just stop and think for a second. Right. Just go back to 2003 and just think about everything that you've done in your life since 2003. And this gentleman, myself and other people have been just stuck in one spot, just trying to come home. Right. And and. And I don't know how else to put it into perspective. For me, it's like time stopped. Right. And it's like, we're just watching life go by through a window, you know, or a picture here and there, or a 15 minute conversation. And we just try to put everything in, you know, together so we can kind of stay relative, but life is moving at the speed of a train and, and, and we're just stuck here, you know, feeling forgotten, feeling left behind. And all of that builds up to all of this anxiety of coming home. And now, like you say, you're getting ready to come home. And again, you're playing through your mind like I have, like anybody else has, what can these people stop me from going home on? Yeah. You, know? you always play that in your mind, you know, and, you know, just, you know, to the point that you were, you were making, I used to tell people all the time, you know, you spent 17 years, five months and 21 days, out here in the real world, I spent 17 years, five months, 21 days in prison. You had different experiences every day. I had the same experience every day. And like you said, you know, I believe that I've seen plenty of men in prison grow physically, but never grow mentally. You know, a lot of guys are stuck. Like I went to prison at 24 and I've seen guys that went to prison at 24 and they've been in there 25, 30 years. And they're still 24 years old mentally, man. They never grew up. And prison has a way of doing that to people. And I was stuck in that in that little time frame thing for a while until I said, you know what? I want to change my life. I want to do better with my life because if they do bring parole back, what am I going to tell the parole board that I got caught with a knife, that I got caught with a shank, that I sold dope in prison, that I was getting drunk in prison. I don't want to tell the parole board that I want to bring the parole board, you know, a file that says, Hey, I've changed my character that I regret the irrational, irresponsible choices that I made that led to my imprisonment. So that's when I changed, I changed my life, man, 100% changed my life. And when I began to change my life, I began to grow mentally, not only physically, but mentally. And I started to appreciate my freedom and appreciate and appreciate what life had to offer. And, you know, that's why I went to work in the law library and, 
You know, I started working on my own case. I worked on plenty of other people's cases. You know, I've got numerous people out of jail. I, I, you've probably seen it. I posted on Facebook all the time. I have, man. And listen to, I applaud you, dog, for real. What you're doing and what you've done is very, very rare. I give you mad, mad respect and props for what you've done. Anybody that can come home, and, and this is what I'm trying to do. Anybody that can come home from that, you've been gone 17 years. You have every right to come home and just live your life, right? Anybody that can come home and sacrifice their freedom in that sense to turn around and try to help their brothers and sisters is a soldier by all count. So I give you mad props for that, man. I appreciate that, man. Appreciate it. I do it because I know what it's like, man. I knew what it was like to, you know, I couldn't get people to help me because, you know, every time I, I wrote for help, they said, well, you know, you, you had two gun charges. You know, I got five years for the first gun, 25 for the second, and 10 years for the drugs. So it, it had always been, you know, we can't help you. You know, organizations like FAM, hey, sorry, we can't help you. You know, you got a gun. So I knew what it was like to be, you know, desperate to mm -hmm. want help. And I told dudes when I left prison, I said, man, I'm going out there to do everything I said I would do. You know, and, and, you know, I wasn't building houses in prison for 17 years. I was doing legal work. So this is what I do. This is my life. This is this. And I know what it's like to suffer and people need help. And there's plenty of men and women, you know, like I know that deserve that help. So who was going to come out here and do it? I've heard plenty of dudes go home. Hey, Chad, I'm going to write you, man. I'm going to do this for you. And you know what? No one ever does it. So I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be that guy to tell my boys, hey, man, I got you. And I walk out and I leave everybody behind. And all right, I'm living my life now and I forgot about you. You know, I don't, I'll never forget what, you know, that chicken day is like or what the count's like or what it's like to have a, a guard tell you, you know, to shut the fuck up and get in your room or destroy your cell. You know, I'll never forget that stuff. And, you know, people would think, well, you know, federal correctional officers, because I used to probably think this, you know, these are professional people. They're federal guards. You know, man, these people are some of the most horrible people you'll ever meet in your life. They treat us like we're third world citizens. They treat us worse than dogs, you know. And, you know, there's people out there that'll say, oh, they got cable TV and, well, they get cheeseburgers and they got meatloaf. But what they don't know is the stuff's made out of pink slime. The food's so horrible you can't eat it anymore, you know. And who cares about cable TV? What you care about is, you know, your family, the people that you love and that you care about. You know, when you go to bed hungry at night, you care about that. You know, when you're not sure if you're going to ever see your mother again alive or be able to, you know, take her out to dinner ever again. Those are the things that matter at the end of the night, man. When you lay down and it's only you by yourself. So I want to make, I want to help them dudes, man, that were in the same position as me and, and some females that I help. I want them to be able to experience what Alice Johnson experienced. I'm sure you've seen her, right? Donald Trump released Ron Clemency. She ran across the street, all happy. Her family's crying. You know, more people deserve that. And I'm a firm believer that there has to be consequences for your actions, but I also believe that the punishment, that the time should fit the crime, man. That you shouldn't send nonviolent drug offenders off to prison for, you know, 40, 50 years or for life. You just shouldn't do it, man. I got a guy right now I'm working on his case out of Texas, Joseph Mesa. The guy was, I don't I think he was 22 years old. He did a robbery with a BB gun. They gave him 85 years. No one was hurt. The dude's got over 200 programs in prison, college education. This guy deserves a second chance. He's been in there 25 years. Release him. You know, show some compassion. He deserves to get out of prison more than I did. But yet I'm here and he's still there. But I'm working this on is, this case. This is, this is my point, what you just said. And, and, and you know, when I started this, this, this program and when I started my organization, right, I started in the, in the sense of reform, 
criminal justice reform. But being where I've been and knowing what I know, I cannot sit in front of these politicians. I cannot sit in front of these legislators, these governors. I can't do it. I cannot sit in front of these people and have them lie to my face and placate me about, oh, well, we want to pass this bill and we want to do this. Listen, stop telling me what you want to do. Do it. It's there. You can do it. If you're not doing it, right, then you're part of the problem. And I don't even want to have a discussion with you because like what you say is, 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 is absolutely disgusting. You know, I, I was a two level recipient, right? I didn't know I was getting the two levels because I was in the midst of getting um, uh, uh, clemency, right? I had spoke with the clements, though, the pardon attorney in Washington, D.C. She was completely on my side and she was telling me that she was putting me on the list to, to get the clemency from Obama because my case was just such a, a case of overzealousness, prosecutorial overzealousness, right? It, it was a 40-man indictment, conspiracy, no drugs, ghost dope, right? I was the only one to go to trial, and that pissed them off, right? Because everybody else cooperated, and they wanted me to cooperate, and I just wouldn't do it. It just wasn't in me. So I just told them I'm going to trial. They wanted to give me an open plea, and once I understood what an open plea was, I'm like, no, you know, I might as well just go to trial. And it pissed them off. They gave me uh, obstruction of justice, all of that crap. Yeah. So I ended up getting the two levels, right? Which killed my clemency. And it sent me home 90 days after I was awarded for that. And my case manager was the one that did all that for me, right? Mm -hmm. So that feeling that you're talking about, I, I got the same feeling, right? And the disgusting thing about it is, is again, it's not, it's not universal, right? It's not, it's still something that you have to apply for. And it's still something that's decided upon. So again, that, that there's a lot of uh, uh, racism in there, right? And same position, like you said, I got a guy down in Miami, 18 years old, did a robbery, they gave him 60 years, right? stack charges all of this the man's a grandfather he's never had the chance to be a father yet you know sad sad man sad reality with our criminal justice system right the department of justice for me is not a department of justice when they do things like that for me it's a department of prosecutions and like you said you know as far as the you know legislators and the senators and the congressmen i'm willing to sit down with them at any moment because I, I'm a firm believer that you can't fix something you won't face. But I also think that we have to demand change. It can't just be, no hey, question. just you know, lip service. We got to demand it. Because Tired we live in a service. government that's supposed to be for the people, by the people. Tired if, lip they're service. Not gonna, if they're not going to do it, then we need to start putting our people up there, right? That doesn't mean, you know, some people get might get, you know, some people have gotten mad at me when I say this. But, you know, sometimes they're, you know, people have to go to jail. I deserve to go to prison, 100%. I was 24 years old, but I didn't deserve a 40-year sentence. Especially, and some of your viewers might not know this, when the government offered a plea that could have been as little as 10 years. So if 10 years was sufficient for my crime because I exercised a constitutional right to trial, how is 40 okay? Our forefathers said I had that right. So 
Do you think I could have been rehabilitated and been back in the community in 10 years, right, on a plea agreement as low as 10, 11 to 14, but no lower than 10 because that was my mandatory minimum. But because I went to trial, 40 years is sufficient, but not greater than necessary to achieve the goals of sentencing on the 3553A. It's an oxymoron. It's absolutely ridiculous. You know, you, you see, can't have and, your cake and eat it too. And they justify that with the fact that because, right, you didn't take the plea, you didn't take ownership, and because you didn't show acceptance of responsibility by cooperating and telling your part in, in what you've done. Therefore, you need a longer sentence and more time to think about it. It's going to take more time to rehabilitate that mind. That's for a person that just comes in and just is completely acceptable for the responsibility. This is how they justify that. It's absolutely ridiculous. It is. It's, 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 it's absurd. And it's it's draconian, it's, it's, it's barbarian. And, and what this is doing, right, is it's, it's, it's eating our nation. I believe that everything that you see today going on in the streets is a result yeah. of what's going on within our prison system. We're churning out monsters. We're churning out PTSD. We're churning out killers. We're, we're, we're sending people and putting them in a position that is altering their life. People are going to prison that may have not been a killer and they're coming home killers because of the environment that they're in, right? Well, you've got some guys that go to prison and they're not killers and they kill people in prison because of the environment that they put them in. This and I'm sure point. you've probably oh. seen, you've probably seen the video with, uh, I forgot his name, man, out of Utah. The dude, uh, they ended up killing a dude the other kid that was with him, he went to jail for like forgery. He's a you know skinny little white kid. I think he had glasses. And then he ended up, you know, helping this dude kill this other dude. He held the dude on the ground while the other dude stabbed him. It was called Gladiator. The video was Gladi Gladiator. And they stabbed sure. the dude. They kill him. I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you the info so you can check it out. They yeah, killed the dude, right? Now this is this is just some kid that went into prison. You know, really he was just, you know, what some people might call a lane. But this other kid influenced him. Hey, man, help me. We're going to kill this dude because the dude's disrespecting us on the door. They sign him up for sick call. They kill the dude. Now that dude's got a life sentence because they put him in a maximum security prison, an 18-year-old kid. And, you know, had he not helped the dude, he might have been a stabbing victim. So sometimes you're, you feel like you're in a position where, you know, either you're going to do this in order to protect yourself or you're not. Because if he didn't do it, then there might be consequences for him. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand about prison. You know, sometimes people do things that they don't want to do because they're protecting themselves. And I'm sure, yeah. and I'm sure you've seen this, you know, I was with a dude from Texas. This dude was like one of the toughest dudes on the compound. I was in USP Big Sandy at the time. And, you know, he was putting in work. He was doing some bad things to people, man, stabbing people, doing all kinds of stuff. But really he had cooperated on his case and no mm -hmm. one knew. So what he was doing was, and he was a tough dude dude named Swift. So what Swift was doing was, I know his real name too. So anyway, what Swift was doing was, you know, he, he, you know, unleashed violence on other dudes to protect himself, to keep people off of him. And, you know, dudes were scared of this dude. And at the end of the day, he would have been put in the hat. He would have been in a bad position had people found out, but dudes do things, you know, so you stay focused on something else than the issue at hand. And we see that every day in life as well, you know, and again, that's a lot of the issue 
that's going on out here in society is people hiding from who they really are and exploiting others in the process, right? So let's get into that a little bit, right? So people really understand, again, what it is that we're talking about. Now, for me, I've never associated with gangs. I never wanted to be part of gangs, right? Never wanted to to be involved in it. Not that I disrespect them, not because I don't understand them, just because I have no place in them, right? And this is what I always knew is I, I had no place in a gang, you know? And, and I always carried a lot of respect for that when I explained it that way. So when you're in prison, you're in a gang, whether you know it or not, right? So you have what they call cars, you know, and when you get inside, nobody is without a car. A car could be where you're from. If you're from a heavily populated area, say, say Miami, you may have, you may, what they would call the Miami car. Right. And now with the federal system, because you could be shipped anywhere in the country. So now when when if you're if you're in a Florida institution, yeah, your your car may be big. But if you get shipped out to California, you may only have three people in your car. Right. So you may have to join another sort of car. So the point of what I'm getting at is, is these people are is what you call independents. They're not affiliated with no gangs, but they're just independent individuals that all run together and they look out for one another. They keep everybody on the straight, so on and so forth. Then you have consider that a gang? Huh? Do, you consider, do you consider that a gang? I don't consider it a gang, no. I, I don't consider, I don't like the, the name gang to say, right? Okay. It, for me right? A gang is just a group of people that are just trying to survive under an environmental pressure that they're under, right? They, they coexist under one ideology, whatever that ideology may be. We put the stigma of a gang on them, and then we labelize gang as a negative, violent, murderous thing. You see? I agree with you. I'm glad you said that. That's insightful. Even for me, I learned something from you today. Teachable moment. So, well, I appreciate that. So, and, and again, this is the premise of what my show really is, is really just to try to enlighten people so they, we can get rid of this stigma because the stigma is what's killing us. The stigma is what's not allowing us to find employment when we come home. The stigma is what's eating us alive from the inside out. I'm big on, I'm big on what you say too, because it's like, You want society, you, really what you want to do is you want to change society's perception, right? Not you just by yourself, but us, including myself. I want to change society's perception of prisoners and prison, you know, gangs and violence. And, you know, these are the worst of the worst. These people never deserve to get out because that's what people think. You know what I mean? They watch these prison shows. I'm sure they watch plenty of YouTube channels. And, you know, a lot of that stuff does happen in there, right? But there's also good people in there that deserve a second chance to reclaim their lives. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, people are redeemable. And I'm a firm believer that there's more good people in prison than the bad people. You know, it's kind of like back in the day when everybody would say, oh, don't have a pit bull dog. They'll bite your kids. And, you know, and, you That's know, exactly 20, right. 25 years later, we find, hey, man, these are really good dogs. You know, so people, people need to understand that there are good people in prison. There are people that do deserve a second chance. There are people in prison that are dying to get out of prison to be a productive society to be a, 
a productive person in society. And, you know, sometimes they're never going to get, you know, a lot of people aren't going to get that chance. I was one of those people. Had the law not changed, I would have went to prison at 24. And if I would have done my full term, I would have got out at 64. With good time, I would have got out at 58. So what was there? What was the incentive, you know, to do the right thing? Was there an incentive? Or, you know, not even was there an incentive? You know, some people give up. A lot of people give up. They say, man, I got nothing left. When I got out of prison, my mom will be dead. I'll have no family. It's kind of like that movie. What was that movie? Shawshank Redemption? Yes, man. Remember that movie? Shawshank Redemption, man. The guy got out of jail and just couldn't function. How do you take a 24-year-old and release him when he's 60? And I didn't kill anybody. You know, do you, you know, you talk about you want people to have a successful reentry. You can't possibly think as a lawmaker, and we're talking about senators, congressmen, and the president right now, you can't possibly think that you're going to make society a better place by putting someone, a nonviolent drug offender in prison for 40 years and then releasing them. Where's the successful reentry? Any type of social integration, any type of employment is, you know, pretty much impossible. It's impossible. And, you know, I've, I've, I've done some interviews and stuff. And I've told people when I got out of prison, there were things that, you know, I, it was hard for me after 17 years. I was scared to, like, cross the street. Cars are coming by. Uh, honestly, I have a hard time sleeping at night, man. And I actually sleep, man, I, I just, you know, I sleep with a knife, man. And, my, and, and I live in a nice area. But it's that. The comfort. The P, maybe it's the PTSD or that's the what comfort. I know. That it's, knife it's, gives me the security blanket. You have PTSD. There's no question about that. There's no question about that. And what's important about that, Chad, is understanding that I have PTSD. Four years later, I'm still experiencing. I experience uh, just in my house, any sudden noise that that I'm not aware of, it startles me. I jump, right? So, any, any, anything behind me. It could be a plastic bag that my wife may hang on the back of a door that I don't know. And when I open the door, the bag just startles me, right? Because again, we've lived years under a lifestyle of as soon as that door cracks, you get up, you put your boots on, you strap up. That means put your knife on you somewhere instantly because three or four dudes could run up in your cell at any moment because you may have pissed somebody off or you may have been green lighted, but we're going to get into all of that, right? But it's that anxiety that every day, every day, you could make one wrong decision that could end your life or drastically change your life to where you're, you're using the bathroom out of a bag. Again, these are missions of people. People may not want to kill you. They just may want you to shit out of a bag for the rest of your life is what they would say. You There's know? plenty of people that accidentally killed people that weren't planning on killing anyone. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I've mean, seen a dude in Pollock where it was- Pollock. I know yeah, dudes it was the white Polar. dudes. They said uh, I was USP Polar for a little bit, and they said, "Hey, you know, don't eat the bag lunch. You know, we're we're going against the cops. We're not we're not taking the food." Well, this white dude didn't have nothing in his locker to eat, so you know, he ate his bag. No one could get any food to him. The cop wouldn't pass nothing. He ate his bag, man. He was hungry. He came out. They said, "We're going. We're just going to beat this dude up," and they beat him up so bad he walked down to the officer station. He fell down and died. And one of the dudes that was involved only had like eight months left. I don't know what happened to them, but them dudes didn't intend to kill the dude. They wanted to beat him up. But now guess what? Some of them are probably going to do life. You know, cop out when you kill someone in prison. It used to be life. You kill someone in prison when we get five years. They're not playing right. that shit. Now it's 25, 30 more years. I had a celly that was stabbed, man, over 30 times. And he was the wrong dude. He came from Hazleton to Big Sandy. 
they thought he was someone else. The TABs hit him. The Texas Aaron Brotherhood hit him. And uh, they stabbed him 30-something times. He never – this dude didn't testify to them dudes or nothing. They went to court. The cops came and testified. They played the video. One dude ended up with 25 more years, and the other dude copped out to 15 more. So when the dude had 30, now he's got another 25. His life's over with, man. You know, these things do happen in prison. It's a reality. How how easy is that to happen and uh, someone to get set up and, and take that bid? How easy uh, – rephrase that question, man. So, so how easy is it for me, let's say – to 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 knock somebody off as you said right and plant my my shank on somebody and 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 set that other person up to take my bid i mean it's possible but if you do stuff out in the day room there's cameras pretty much everywhere right i mean there's some mm-hmm. blind spots we've seen that with whitey bulger um but there i've seen dudes you know stab a dude and two dudes go to the hole and the dude says no he didn't have nothing to do with it i did Mm-hmm. And that dude gets out of the hole and the other dude's down there in the hole in Big Sandy for 30 days. And then he gets out and it's nothing. But when you kill someone, I mean, I think it's a little difficult. I'm going to keep it real with you. You can stab a dude in the cell with that camera scene who went in the cell, you know, and believe it or not, even in these maximum security prisons, USPs, there's dudes in there telling on people, bro. I've seen dude, I've seen a dude killed in my unit when I was mm-hmm. in USP lead. And I was shocked to see the dudes that came out of their cell and went to court and testified at the grand jury. You know, needless to say, they never came back to that prison, at least not mm-hmm. on the compound. They came back and went in the shoe. But, you know, there are dudes that tell on people, man. So there's a lot of cameras there, including ones with two legs. People tell on people, man. Dudes, Some dudes are doing life like, I'm telling on this dude. If they're going to let me get out. And dudes do that shit, man. And, you know, we had a homeboy from Jersey. I was, I'm from New York. We had a homeboy from Jersey. He was an old man when that happened. You know, my buddy called him over to the cell and said, hey, what are you doing? You're going to court? And the dude said, I'm just telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And we were, and this was an old man, like 70 years old. He said, I'm just going to tell him the truth, dog. <laughs> and it was just like, you're going down yeah. to tell on this dude, man, for a murder. So, yeah, it's, I think it's hard to get away with that, bro. At least in the federal prison system, in the prisons that I've been in. Because the cameras and, you know, so many people are willing to tell, bro. Even the tough guys, man. So, so let me ask you this here, right? Out of everything that you saw and everything that I've saw, whatnot, mm-hmm. how much of these occurrences are not brought on by the people themselves, right? Like how many dudes are getting raped? How many dudes are getting stabbed just, just because, right? Or they're not bringing these things on to themselves. Well, I write about this in my book a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I think that dudes in federal prison in the places that I've been, like Big Sandy, Polak, USP Lee, that was a little more calmer, but you know, this isn't Allenwood, bro. This ain't USP Allenwood. These are, these were serious prisons, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is like Victorville and big Sandy. These are Pollock. These are the tough places. Um, I think some dudes make up reasons, man, just, just to stab people. We had a dude when I was in big Sandy, I heard him screaming through the vent. These dudes were alleging that he wrote a letter to the prosecutor, but really what they wanted to do was these dudes were junkies. They wanted to rob the dude. So they made up an, an excuse and said, oh, no, we can read it through his on his pad. You can actually see what he wrote the prosecutor. Long story short, dude, it turned out to be a bunch of bullshit. The dude had a big ass store. You know, he had, you know, probably two, three thousand dollars worth of stuff. They wanted to stab him and take his stuff. And that's what they did. They stabbed the dude, made up an excuse, stabbed him and took his stuff. You know, you know, I was in the car because, like you said, 
whatever you're, you know, whatever prison you go to, if you go to a maximum security federal prison, you're going to be in a car as soon as you walk in or you're mm -hmm. out of there. And they make it pretty clear. We're your homeboys. This is what it is. Either you're with us or you're out of here. So in Big Sandy, we had a shot caller there. And he's one of the dudes from that movie, The Town. Remember the, the movie, The Town, out of Boston? Yep, yep. One of them dudes was there, and he was the shot caller in the car when I got there. And I talk about him, you know, in my book, Steve. And he, he told us, he wanted us to hit a dude for sitting in his chair at the chow hall. And in my mind, I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. The dude sat in your chair that you think you own. Well, really, you don't own the chair. But you think you own the chair, but his house ate first. So now you want to stab the dude for sitting in your in your chair? Long story short, man, a couple of the homeboys jumped on him, beat him up. And, you know, he was an older fella. He got beat up for sitting in a chair. So, you know, people, I believe, firm believer that people just make up shit to do stuff to people. But I think it stems from the hurt and the pain and the anger over their situation, man, where there's no incentive. They're never getting out of prison. And they're well, angry, I, so they lash out. I've seen people like, like the chair bit is, is a serious offense. Right. And I've seen that because like what you say, there's very, very few things in prison that we can claim as our own. Right. And, and, and what you're talking about is the chair is in the day area in in the little area, depending on the layout of, of, of your dorm, of course, but in most places you have a day area and you have tv set up there now out in texas because of the segregation is 100 percent. you have a mostly in, in all prisons it's like this but you have a white tv you have a black tv you have a spanish tv you have a sports tv and then a movie tv right and whites sit in front of the white tv and that's it they can only control the white tv you know and then usually you have a uh whoever is the speaker of that dorm or whatever controls what's on that TV or what they watch, but it's usually a group thing, right? So you have a little small section on the floor where you put your chair, you have to take your chair in at night, you have to bring it out. So you have a small little section where you bring your chair and this is your chair, depending on how long you've been there, you, you kind of move up getting closer to the TV, right? That's the ultimate goal to get to where wherever it is that you want to sit you know absolutely and ridiculous this is how crazy it is right and and you you're over years you're you're fighting or you somebody will go home or they'll go to the shoot no nah, no nah, that's my spot now i want that spot people will stab each other over this small little spot because they say that they claim right to it before and this is how serious mental trauma gets inside a prison how how much and this is what i wanted to get into before with the guards because i don't want to paint a picture that all guards are bad right because they're they're trying to survive as well what i'm trying to state is that what prison does and the current state that it's in it creates an environment for for serious psychopathy it, it raises an environment for for serious serious psychopaths and and because of stigma because of media because of these things right it allows now for for people right these guards prior to becoming guards to say oh you know what these guys are big and bad they're killing people inside they need people to come i'm just as bad as they are so they're going in there and getting jobs 
under the mentality of not to rehabilitate, but to, to, to oppress and to punish, right? This is what prison is doing. It's just creating this environment, right? And as we know, we adapt to our environment. So now when these guards and these, and these, these wardens and these lieutenants or whatnot are coming in with the oppressive mind state that they have, it's creating anxiety for us. It's creating frustration for us. It's keeping us distracted from rehabilitating. It's keeping us in an emotional, angry state every day to where we come to the point to where we want to battle over a small one foot square of, of concrete to get a little bit of better view on a, on a 20 inch television. That, you know, that's, that's one of the things that they forget when they walk in there. The punishment comes from the court, not from the cops, not from the warden. The punishment comes from the court, but them people that work in there, and like you said, you know, not all are bad, but for me, my experience, 80% of them are, are, are horrible. They're just horrible. Well, because you're at the end of the line. You're, at the, you're in the slush, right? So you are where nobody, you are considered the person that can't be maintained. So they're sending robocops to you, right? Well, let me tell you this. I've been in prisons where, like Big Sandy, and I've, I've mentioned this before, where you know one of the one of the dudes as soon as I got there slapped the CO in the day room. He slapped the mm-hmm. guard right in the day room, and the guard was scared to death because you know what are you going to do to a guy that's got life? He doesn't care. He has nothing to lose. He's lost everything. So I've been in prisons where the guards were scared. You know, like in Big Sandy. Not all of them, but a lot, man, most of them, they were scared, man. And the warden had to come in there and like, he was a tough dude. It was warden, the warden was Rios. And he tried to like make them guys, you know, like we're, we're you know, RoboCops were coming in here. We're smashing these dudes. If they get out of line, we're the bosses. And really, man, a lot of them were still scared. You know what I mean? And as you get down to the lower levels, you know, some of the guards are a little better. I was in Raybrook in New York and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them guys, I shouldn't say 80% because a lot of them guys treated you with respect. You know what I mean? If you respected them, they respected you. They didn't necessarily go out of their way to, you know, be nasty or to write you up for nothing. You know, most of them over there were all right. So you're right about when you drop levels. But then I went to a low my last nine months and they were absolutely horrible because they think everybody in a low is a child molester or everybody's a snitch. They can't go to any other prison. So they're scared so they can abuse you there because you're not going to do anything in response that would, you know, sacrifice your security level. Because if you go to a medium or a max, well, guess what? Because of your crime or because of what you did, you're in danger. So you're going to let me abuse you and do whatever I want to you because you don't want to go to that other prison. And you know, I was just kind of like, this wasn't a benefit for me. Going to a low security prison was not a benefit for me. I despised it. It was the worst place I ever been. The most disrespectful prisoners ever. People were, you know, sneak thieving, you know, and these are, you know, and the staff were just absolutely horrible. Destroy your cell, leave everything all over the place for no reason. You know, and, and it's been largely documented in my case where my prosecutor contacted the SIS officer, the investigative unit, and my judge said that they manufactured evidence on me to try to keep me in prison. They tried to pin me with a cell phone, uh, chip, which they never even had. They had a cell phone chip holder that was in my Selly's locker in his Bible, but they wrote in the court papers that it was in my Bible in my locker. Well, it all came out that same guy that testified to that. 
he wrote my cellmate up and said it was in his locker, in his binder. And the judge said, look, man, you guys are manufacturing evidence against this guy. And it, not only is it wrong, but it's flimsy. It doesn't even make sense. So, you know, you got people down there at them low security prisons that, you know, the guy, I'm like, look, man, you work in a prison. You want to be a cop? Go be a cop. You want to fight crime? Go be a, a beat cop. Go be a street cop. Fight crime out there. I mean, you don't have to come in here and manufacture stuff against me. I've been in here 17 years. I deserve a chance to get out. I had changed my life. At that point, I hadn't been wrote up in eight, nine years. I got a college degree. I taught GED classes. I taught leadership classes. I taught alternative violence, project seminars. I was a suicide companion. But yet I got this one cop that wants to be a super cop because my prosecutor called him and said, I need something on this guy. You know, he went and made up a bunch of stuff. On my birthday, he stripped me butt naked and took pictures of me, of all my tattoos and, you know, tried to place them with whatever gang or car they wanted me to be in so you know people are nasty and the lower the level the nastier they got i mean that's that those are facts and and that's the truth it's it's a different type of game it's it's more psychological when you get lower you know and and everything that you just said is what i experienced going from beaumont to miami low which miami low is considered uh, one of the havens because it has a lake in the middle of the compound. It still has weights on the compound, you know, so it's a privilege to be at that place. And, and exactly how you said is, is the mentality of them guards is they, they treat you like it's, it's a privilege to be here. They'll ship you out of here real quick, you know, and I'll never forget the first time I had got there, right. Within a month, I was, I was bumping heads with this Lieutenant and, and I had an altered shirt that I had for a long time, but it was just a white t-shirt that I, I sewed some gray long sleeves on. Right. So I was coming back. It was a Sunday and I'm coming back from the commissary and this Lieutenant, he's following me. So he's like, Hey, Hey, you, well, first and foremost, right. I know where I'm at, but I always kept a little self dignity and I wouldn't let anybody respond to me as, Hey, Hey, you, right. You can call me inmate or whatever, because that's what I am, but you're not going to, I'm not some chick that you're going to, hey, you know, so I just kept walking, and he's like, um, he goes, now he says, inmate, if you don't stop right now, you're going to the shoe, so now I stop, I set my commissary down, I turn around, I'm like, Garcia, right, I said, why are you messing with me, man, so he's like, you got contraband on, so I look down, like, my shirt, I'm like, come on, it's Sunday, man, you know, because through the week, you're expected to wear your khakis, you're supposed to, you know, be presentable, because you never know who is going to be on the compound, right? Again, at the end of the day, you have to remember this, this whole thing is a play, right? So I'm telling Garcia, I'm like, look, man, it's, it's, you know, it's the weekend, and and it's Sunday. So he tells me, he tells me, he says, man, I don't give a fuck what day it is, you got contraband on, give me that fucking shirt. You know, he says, go back to the unit and give me that fucking shirt. Man, I took the shirt off right there in the middle of the compound and I threw it at him. I picked my commissary up and I kept walking, right? So this guy, man, he got 38 hot. He threw the shirt back at me and hit me in the back of the head. So he he stops me and he's like, why did you throw the shirt at me? I said, you know, I said, listen, man. I said, you know what? I said, you're absolutely right, Garcia, because at the end of the day, I got contraband on you know, and I said, you're in the right. So I'm going to cool out here. I said, but don't you ever talk to me like that ever again. 
So I'm a grown man, right? And you better respect what I am. I've made mistakes in my life, but respect who I am. I've changed my life. This is why I'm here in a low, you know? And I want to get into that with you because we talked about cars. We talked about the influence that people have on you and the expectations that they have of you to sell drugs, to hurt people, right? Under that pressure, how did you change your life, Chad? Well, like I said, man, I think that people are mentally stuck at whatever age you go into prison, right? And I I always considered myself an educated dude. Okay, I was a drug dealer, but I also owned a pizza shop. I was married. You know, I owned a home improvement company. And I felt like I had matured. I think men, I think something clicks, right? And at a certain age, you change. And you start to, you know, appreciate things. Well, that happened to me before I went to prison. And then when I went to prison, I was like, man, it's like I'm stuck. And there came a point where I said, man, I want to get out of prison. So I have to be a better me. If I don't become a better me, then I'm never getting out of prison. I can sit in here. I can sell drugs. I can do whatever I want. Have a nice white G-Shock watch. You know, buy Nike sunglasses when someone comes in with them. Like you said, your shirt. I was that guy, man. I bought a necklace because I liked nice things before I went to prison. So if you came to that prison, I would just buy whatever you had. If it was nice and no one else had it, I wanted it, right? I wanted to feel like I was still on the street. So I started to change my my rationale, man, where I said, I want to get out of prison. Do I want to be in here and have all the nice stuff for the next 40 years? Or do I want to get out of prison and have nice stuff in the street? So I started to grow up again. You know, I was stuck, but something clicked and said, man, you got to grow up. I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, I want to be a better me because I want to get out of prison. And that's the only way I'm ever getting out. So I changed my mentality, man. I changed my way of thinking. Um, I'm kind of an aggressive dude. I've always been aggressive. So, you know, I tell people, man, I went from a gangster to a gentleman, man. but I can still be that dude if I had to be. But I tried to do things differently because the ultimate goal was what? To get out of prison. Like you said, I've told officers plenty. I don't even like calling them officers. I've told guards and cops plenty of times. Hey, before I'm an inmate, I'm a convict, a prisoner, any of that shit, I'm a man. So respect me. And I was quick to tell them, hey, man, I got 40 years. I got nothing else to lose. And they knew exactly what I meant. Not that I wanted to do something to them, but if you did something to me, then I would return the favor, man. Because at that point in my life, I really didn't have anything to lose. But like you said, you, you know, you told me, you know what? You're absolutely right. I'm a firm believer that people will, people create problems, right? But you can give them a way out because you know, you know that you could probably hurt this person, right? They probably got no shot. And I've been in situations where I'm like, this dude has no shot, but I'm going to give you a way out. I'm going to let you apologize, man. I'm going to let you, you know, and there's been instances where we, you know, we let people go up top at an FCI. Right, so dude, hey, man, you did this, you did that, you got to go. But we're going to allow you to leave without putting our hands on you. You know what I mean? So I started to rational where you don't always have to physically abuse someone, man. You don't have to stab people, man. You don't have to hurt people. You don't have to do that. And like I said, dudes in federal prison and maximum security prisons, they look for reasons to really hurt people. And it's minute stuff. The guy said at the table in the chow hall, okay, that was your chair. Just tell the dude, man, hey, listen, man. That's my chair, man. Don't sit there no more. You guys sit over there. The independent dudes, you guys sit over there at that table. Don't sit in my chair again. That could have been handled like that. But instead, you got two or three 20-year-olds beating up a 50-year-old. You know, I didn't like shit like that, man. 
always been like that. I don't like people that bully people. I don't, I don't give a shit where you're at, prison, high school, middle school. I don't like that shit, man. So when I, you know, when I was in the situation where, you know, I was a leader, you know, I believe leaders breed leaders, right? Bad leaders and good leaders. I would make good decisions, man. I wouldn't have people be the dude up for sitting in the chair. You know what I mean? So I just changed my rationale. I changed my way of thinking. I changed my character, man. Character education. That's what I did. When that, and, and that's what I want to get into. So, so who are you and, and what did you change from? Well, like I said, man, I changed where did, from, where, did, where did you grow up at? Uh, I'm from upstate, well, western New York. I'm from Rochester, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up poor. My mother was a poor single mother on welfare. I became a crack dealer. I sold crack. I was, you know, unfortunately, you know, I sold, I had a whole crew of dudes working for me, allegedly. So I ended up with a 40-year sentence at the age of 24, had that plea, went to trial, got convicted, went to federal prison. Um, From day one, I always said, I'm never getting out of prison unless I get myself out. So I went to the law library, learned the law. And then I started to meet people, man, that had the same shit done to them that was done to me. And they couldn't think past go. They couldn't help themselves. Some people just got it. You can go in there and read case law and learn it. Either you got it or you don't. I'm a firm believer in that. And some people just can't help themselves. So I, was, I had a guy, Billy D. Williams, and I like to talk about Billy sometimes. He pled guilty. He was 24 years old. He had two prior nonsense drug felonies for like $30 worth of crack and $50 worth of crack. Well, those two prior felonies mandated a life sentence for the next time he got caught with 50 grams of crack, which is less than the size of your palm, right? Mm. And they gave him life, but he pled guilty. Who the hell pleads guilty? You think if a lawyer told him, hey, if you plead guilty, you're going to prison for the rest of your life at the age of 25? The lawyer never told the dude that, man. He didn't have any money to hire me. I did his case for free. I lost. I lost his case. But eventually he got out under Obama under clemency. Mm. So I had a desire to help other people. Like I said, I don't like people that bully people. And I feel like the government bullies people. They do nasty things. I don't know how anyone can take a 20-year-old kid that's selling drugs and tell him, look, I'm sending you to prison for the rest of your life. I think that's fair. How do you go home and have dinner with your family? When did you think about that 20-year-old kid? Did you ever go back and think about that his mom had him when he was 14? That maybe no. she was a crack smoker? Did no, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a business. It's, it's, it's like you say, you own what kind of business? I own a paralegal and prison consultant firm. No, I mean, before you went in, you said that you oh, had, I had a pizza shop. Okay, so it's like, a, it's, like, it's like a pizza shop, right? Let's, <clears throat> perfect example. Pizza, you know that pizza is bad for people. You know that if you eat pizza continuously, that you're going to have health problems, right? Pizza is not the best thing for you, right? But you continue to serve it to people. Why? Because it's a business and it's a good business and you make money. It's the same thing with the prison system. It's the same thing with these politicians. It's the same thing with these judges. It's a business. The way they look at it, hey, you shouldn't have did what you did. You shouldn't have put yourself in the position to be wrapped up in my business. Now I'm going to profit off you. And this is how we're treated. This is what we're looked at, right? And Absolutely. instead of them, and listen, if it, I'm cool with that, right? If that's what it is, then let us know that. Don't tell us that you're about reform. Don't tell us about that, that you're about rehabilitation. Tell us, come out on the news and just say, listen, we're, we're a business. This is profit. You want to put yourself in? This is what you're facing. Maybe it'll change the way people look at crime. Who knows? We need well, truth, though. 
Well, like you say, you know, you change the criminal justice system, you stop sending people to prison. What happens? Well, you don't need as many lawyers no more. You don't need as many judges. You don't need as many school teachers in prison, which most of them don't teach anything anyway. You don't need the companies that are making the razor wire or the fencing, right? How many basketballs and footballs and baseball equipment do they sell to prisons? You're right. It's a business, man. How many people do they sit in these unicorn factories working for 25 cents? And they're tricking these people and making them think they made $200 this month. You're doing really good. $200 in prison is really good to some people, right? To most people. And they trick them, but yet they're selling this firm. Well, we're selling it to government agencies. We're making the uniforms for the military. You know, we're, we're doing this. We're doing that. Yeah, it is. It's a business for profit. But now I think that society is starting to think and see things and they're not happy with the things that happen. We have to have a, there have to be, there has to be consequences for actions, right? But if we're really about rehabilitation, then what should we be doing? We should give people a way out, right? Better yourself so that you can better society. Our society shouldn't be based on all the jobs that come with prisons and all the tax dollars that they get from workers that they just shove back into the system. You know, it's either prison or war that fueled our economy. So, I mean, well, it's scientifically day, well, proven. Right? It's scientifically proven that it only takes five years to rehabilitate the human mind, to retrain the human mind. It only takes five years. So what do we need 40 year sentences for? Right. If, if you're saying that it only takes five years to retrain the mind and if that fight, if, if, if that rehabilitation does not occur within those five years, then rehabilitation is is it, it can't happen. So what, what are we sentencing the people to 20 and 30 years for? Right. But so how did you, Chad, get into drug dealing as a kid? Right. You say your, your mother was single on welfare. What made you choose that path? Well, I'm gonna tell you what made me choose that path, right? My father was a drug addict, man. He died. He, you know, he died. I believe he died getting high overdose. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. It's, it's all right. I never seen the uh, I never seen the reports or anything like that, but that's what I believe. Um, like I said, I came from a poor community, right? What age was that? What when my dad died? Yeah. Um, I believe I was. 20, I was 22 when my dad died, oh, but what okay. I was just going back to what my neighborhood was, you know, um, what my upbringing was. My father yeah. was a drug addict. Um, so we were poor growing up. We were poor. My father left when I was little. My mom struggled, ended up, you know, on welfare, raising me and my sister at the time. And I wanted better. I was always a hustler, man. Always, always a hustler. I'd shovel people's driveways. I'd mow their grass. I'd carry people's grocery bags. If I wanted to go to WWF wrestling, I'd go hang out at the grocery market and say, can I carry your bags to your car for a dollar? So I was always a hustler. But as I started to get older, I seen other kids had, you know, better stuff than us. We were poor, man. We were kind of, I don't want to say we were just, you know, dirty kids or stuff like that because my mom was clean. But, you know, there was a point in time where I only had two pairs of jeans, man. I had four shirts and two pairs of jeans. I said, I don't want to live like this, man. And I had a friend that was selling drugs and, you know, for his uncle. And I was like, man, I want to sell drugs too, because I want to be able to buy some Nike Airs. I want to be able to have, you know, some brand name jeans. And that's what I did. I started selling drugs for a guy out of a house. Didn't work out over the weekend. My mother, and actually I had a stepfather. My stepfather came down there and uh, they brought me out of the house at 13 years old, pulled my pants down and spanked me, man, in front of everybody. You know how embarrassing that was? But that was the end of the line. After that, everything went downhill. 
I didn't care what my mom said. My stepfather left the home. Again, my mother was a single mother at that point. And I can, I was the, the, the man of the house at 13. And I said, I'm going to start selling drugs. So I sold some fake drugs to some people mm-hmm. um, in a minivan. They shot at me. They came back and shot at me. I sold them $100 worth of fake drugs. And they shot at me at 13 or 14 years old. But I took that money and bought real drugs. And then I started selling. Um, back then it was powder cocaine. You know, people were freebasing where I was from. And then I turned that into other money. And me and one of my buddies, we went in a partnership and, you know, he was kind of lazy. I talk about him in the book and I just took off from there. I always had that entrepreneur spirit, even for bad things. Mm-hmm. And um, I started selling drugs and made my life better, I thought at the time. But really all I was doing, every bag of dope that I sold, I was just taking a step closer and closer to Big Sandy. That was my first prison. So, you know, in the end, I just made my life worse. Mm-hmm. So, so that's how I started selling drugs. So how did you get wrapped up with guns and drugs? Well, like I said, I'm, I'm from, you know, New York. And anytime you're involved in the drug business, I mean, there's potential for danger, right? Mm-hmm. So we always had a gun in the house. Really, if I tell you what I went to prison for, you'd be shocked. I got five years for a 12-gauge shotgun and 25 years for a 22 rifle. I always thought as long as we didn't have a pistol, rifles are legal. So we can have a rifle in the house and we're good. Well, I didn't know the federal law said that if you have a weapon, if you're in possession of a weapon in furtherance of a drug trafficking crime, the first one is five years, the second one is 25, and every consecutive one is 25, and they all have to run wild. So what the cops did in my case, they knew the federal law. They busted a house, they found a gun, they didn't arrest me, they let me go. A month later, they busted another house, and then they arrested me, but I'm going to tell you why. Because if they arrested me the first time, I would only been facing 15 years. But because of the second gun, I was now facing a mandatory minimum of 40. And they wanted that. But if I was such a threat to the community, right, public safety factor, why didn't you arrest me then? Why'd you Mm -hmm. leave me out there for another month, month and a half so you can get the extra 25 years? Was I a danger for the next 30 to 45 days that you left me out here that you didn't arrest me? Mm -hmm. 100%. Now, is is that what they call stacking? 100%. 100%. That's 18 USC 924C stack. Okay. So can you explain exactly the difference between uh, a stack charge, as you say, and an unstacked charge? Yeah. Um. So let, let, I'll just use me for an example, right? I was arrested for 50 grams or more of crack cocaine. That came with a 10-year sentence. Um. The first gun comes with a five-year sentence if I just possessed it. Really, they found it in the house that I wasn't even in, but I was charged with constructive possession. Had I brandished the weapon, that would have been an additional, that would have been seven years instead of five. Had I fired the weapon, it would have been 10. So now you get that first five years on top of the mandatory 10 for the drugs. The second gun that they find as part of the conspiracy, you get 25 years for that. And if I had a third one, it'd be another 25 and they have to be stacked. So now if I only had, and they can all be in the same indictment, you would think, well, you know, that's a recidivist enhancement. You know, the first time you get five, you don't learn your lesson, you get out. You do it again. Now you get 25 years. It doesn't work. It didn't work that way. It was five years, 25, 25. I got friends that are serving Ian Owens. He's serving like 300 years for, you know, he did some, he did some bank robberies, right. And had a weapon, but they gave him 300 years, five, 25, 25, 25, 25, 25, 25, right on down the line. So that's the difference. But under the first step back, they changed that. You can no longer get five and 25 all in the same indictment. Now it's the five, 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 
or it could be, you know, seven, 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 if you branched it or if you fired it, 10, 10, 10, 10. So they did change it, but this is the problem. They didn't make it retroactive. So all the guys, all the Joseph Mesas that I described earlier, all the Ian Owens, you know, that didn't apply to them. So they're still sitting in prison suffering. But it's only for the guys that get rearrested, the guys that get arrested now and come in. But hopefully under the Biden administration, they'll change that. You know what I mean? And they should. What what kind of mental stress do you think that has on a person? I mean, how 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 do you think that affects a person to know that you are sitting in prison for another 30 years and you're watching people go home with the same thing that you have? Well, I can tell you from experience, right? I was, and not to be arrogant, I was one of the main, if not the main criminal justice advocate from prison on 924C. I wrote a big article after the first step back. They published it on FAM, put it everywhere. I was seeing guys get out on compassionate release. And, you know, there's a bunch of lawyers involved. People, you know, made the argument better. Like I said, I wrote the first one that won. I wrote it from prison. But I've seen other guys leaving that had 924C stack sentences under compassionate release. And I'm like, damn, man, I've been the dude that's been advocating this. And I'm still sitting in here. And my stuff was filed and I'm waiting on the judge. I think it was a total of 14 to 15 months from my initial filing before I got out. So it was devastating to think like, man, I'm not going to get out. And I got friends that I'm working on cases right now. Like, um, I want to use the rapper Lil Baby. You know who he is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, his father's in federal prison. He lived in the cell next to me. Had stacked 924 C's. I did all his legal work. I did his case. It was in front of the judge in Tennessee. That it ended up getting transferred to another judge. I did another case exactly similar to his in front of the first judge. Three months after I did his, that guy's out of prison. Little baby's father, he's still sitting in prison because the new judge hasn't answered the motion. And he calls all the time. What can we do, man? I'm devastated, man. I'm he started with life plus 55 years. He's like, I'm devastated, man. I just want to get out of here, man. What can I do? And all I can say is we can just, we just got to wait on the judge. There's a new yeah. case that comes out. I update. Hey, judge, exactly what we asked you. They just did in Florida. Or, hey, they just did it over here in New York. And that's all we can do. So, I mean, mentally, it's destroying. This kid lost his mom, and now he just lost his dad two months ago. And he's been in prison 27 years. The dude deserves 24, 25 years, somewhere in that range. This dude deserves to get out of prison, man. He hasn't had a write-up in 20 years. He had one write-up his whole time for being out of place. He was in a class when he had a high accountability. He didn't go up there and say, hey, call me in. He's in a class. They wrote him up for not uh, reporting. But the dude deserves to get out, man. So, man, guys are in turmoil over that stuff. It's crazy. It's crazy. Just like I, I keep saying to Mujin Kinsu, the, you know, the guy that I've interviewed several times, 34 years in prison, completely innocent, still trying to get home. You know, the governor just denied his clemency. He's an innocent person. It's, it's ridiculous. You interviewed him? Yeah. So, yeah, it's on the show. So I got three interviews with him. Okay, two I'll or three. Them. Maybe two, maybe, maybe from prison? two interviews from prison. Okay. Yeah. He's up there in, in, uh, in Michigan, you know, okay. but so going back to the stack, right. Cause I want to put this in perspective so can, people can really understand. So what Chad explained is let's say, let's use bank robbery. So we have the initial act of conspiracy where let's say, you know, two individuals, us, Chad and I, we, we plan on robbing a bank. Then we run red lights on the way to the bank. 
right? Then we go in and we rob the bank. We shoot at people in the bank. We leave. We run red lights and hit a couple cars, leaving the bank. We shoot at a couple people outside. I say that in that order because each one of those is an infraction. And what he's talking about is instead of running the whole incident as just one bank robbery charge, it was just one ongoing incident. It was just fluent, right? There was no pause. They didn't stop, go to sleep, wake up. They didn't stop and eat anywhere and then commence. It was all just one action, right? What Chad is saying stacking is, is where they'll take that one action and break it down for each infraction to, to pile charges on you to, to get you into a career, uh, criminal career status, to just give you a life sentence, essentially, right? Did I explain well, that correctly? Is, well, um, a little bit. Okay, what clean they it up do is, for me. I, I'd, rather, I'd rather do it this way, okay. a drug conspiracy, okay? Because okay. what you're talking about, they did, they've done that. And in the 10th Circuit, they shot it down and said they were wrong, that they shouldn't, that they shouldn't do it that way. But what right. they do is, me, I, me and you commit a, we'll use the robbery analogy, right? Me and you commit a robbery, we get away, they don't know who we are. Okay. A week later, we commit another robbery. Use the same gun. They don't know who we are. A month later, we commit another robbery of a bank. Same gun. Now they know who we are. They got us on tape. We left the fingerprint. So for that first gun, you brandished it. You get seven years, right? The second bank robbery, that's 25 years. And the last bank robbery is another 25 years. So now we got 57 years just for possessing that same gun, right? Really, what it's supposed to be is a recidivist enhancement. And that's what they fixed with the first step back. And now let's go. Now let's stay there for a second, but go back to a drug conspiracy. You bust a house, you find a gun, you don't arrest me. That gun's connected to my drug conspiracy. A month later, you bust another house, you find that 22 rifle, right? That's all part of the same conspiracy. So now I got 25 and five. There's 30 plus 10 for the drugs, and they're all stacked on each other. So you got 10, five, and 25, 40 years. Same thing with the robberies. You got you got seven, 25, and 25, 57. But that's not even counting the time that you're going to get for the robbery, which could be zero to 20 years for the armed bank robbery. So the judge could say, you know what? I'm giving you 57 years for the guns and 20 years for the robbery. You've got 77 years. You're 30 years old. You're going to die in prison. Should there be? But now let's put this in perspective for your viewers, okay? The average sentence for murder in federal court is, the median sentence is, 20 years. The average sentence for murder is 262 months, which is what? 22 years. So mm -hmm. you can kill someone and get 22 years. Um, there's a big, you know, there was a big case, Weldon Angelos had stacked 924C, sold some marijuana, ended up with 55 years because they allege he had a gun every time he sold, you know, an ounce or two to someone of marijuana. Off somebody oh. else's testimony, I'm sure. Yeah. So off of that other guy's testimony, a confidential informant, another guy that had a criminal history and whatever. So he ended up with 55 years. And his judge said, I have to give this guy more time under the law than what a person who sexually, physically sexually abuses a child, a terrorist, a terrorist that gets on a plane and blows up the plane would get less time than this guy. I have to give this guy 55 years. But had he been a terrorist, I would only have to give him 20 years. Had he killed someone, his sentence would be 262 months. Had he molested a child, his sentence may have only been 10 years. 
but I have to give this guy 55 years. It's Why? Crazy. Why does the judge have to give that to him? Because those were statutory penalties that Congress imposed. You can't get around that. Those are mandatory minimums that Congress set the statute for, and the judge can't get under them unless you cooperate. You know, that's really the only real way to go under. People are like, oh, well, the safety valve, the only real way to get under that 55 years was for him to come tell on someone, and he didn't do that, right? He, he went to trial, and he lost trial, and he ended up with 55 years. However, by the grace of God, he's out of prison, and President Trump most recently pardoned him, so he no longer has a felony record. You know, he's a big advocate for reform. And Trump gave him a, a pardon. Yeah, gave him a pardon. He got out in 2010 um, under Obama. Mm-hmm. He went to court, and you know, they dismissed some charges. The, the Department of Justice dismissed a couple of the stack 924Cs, and he ended up getting released. He had Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, helping him. So things worked out. He was, he's been out since, I want to say, 2010, doing the right thing, you know, criminal justice reform activist, and worked closely with the White House on some stuff. And Trump pardoned him. So now he no longer has a criminal record either. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So he ended up doing, or he got 55 years. Yeah. How much would he have gotten if he would have cooperated? Oh, God, I don't know. Had he cooperated, maybe in that situation, maybe five, six years. Okay, so, so let's just say five years. Yeah. Right, so let's just say five years. So you're talking a difference of 50 years, right, to, to, to just go to trial, to, to you know, yeah. to, to use your First Amendment right to, to go to trial. So why, why, why do they do that, Chad? Why, what is the pressure? Why? Why do they allow people to cooperate and get that time? Well, why, why do the government punish us so badly for not cooperating? Or why is there such a, a, a wide range between five years and 55 years, you know? Well, let me tell you. What's what the think. incentive? What's the incentive that the government has? I can only tell you what I think, right? And we can, we can look at Sammy the Bull Gravano. Let's use him. Great example, right? Sammy the Bull Gravano admits to what? 17 murders on the stand, I think it was, right? Yeah. He ends up getting a plea for five years, right? That's because they wanted John Gotti so bad. So they were willing to say, hey, this guy that's a threat to the public, pretty, pretty obvious he's a threat to the public. He killed 17 people. He admitted to it. Probably more than that. He's a threat. Now, is, it, is he a threat to the community? I mean, common sense says this guy's a dangerous dude. We shouldn't let this dude out of prison, no matter who he tells on, right? But because we want John Gotti, we're going to allow him to tell, and we're going to let him out. And I think it comes down to what you said. I think process, most prosecutors, not all, but probably 85% of them, they're numb. They have no compassion. They have no feelings. They don't care about you. They don't understand what it's like. And you know what? I go back to you know, John Gleason was my federal judge, right? I mean, he was my, my attorney. He was a federal judge for 22 years. In fact, he was the guy that gave that deal to Sammy to Bull Gravano. I'm sure it had to come from Washington, D.C., but he gave that deal to him. But, you know, since he stepped down from the bench, you know, he's done a lot of things. He said a lot of things. He's done videos. He, he helped me for free. I mean, these are million-dollar lawyers that stepped in for free because he's seen the injustices. And he said something in a video that I seen that he did for the New York Times. And he said that his mentor told him when he became a federal judge, I want you to do this. I want you to visit a prison every year. Because after you get done sentencing, our job is to do justice. But go see the places that we have, uh, that, that, that you're sending these people to. He said, go see the places. 
go check out these people. You know, go go see uh, go see what uh, where you're sending them. Go look at the effects of your sentencing. And Judge uh, Justice Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, he said that he used to tell all his clerks that, you know, some of you guys are going to be, you know, prosecutors someday. Some of you might be federal judges. Some might be defense lawyers. He used to take his students and his clerks into federal prisons. This is a Supreme Court judge. Some people don't like him, but I think the guy's fair. And that's all I ask for, man. As, as, right. as a criminal defendant, be fair. If the law says this, and the police violated it this way, then, you know, give me, give me my due, give me my due. But I also think that, like I said earlier, the time should fit the crime. The time should fit the crime. You don't take a 24 year old and send him to prison for 40 years. I got a guy I used to write for, I write for criminal legal news, Jamel Azell, 20 years old. They gave him 132 years at 20 years old. The judge says, I don't want to do this, but I have to. He robbed Domino pizzas, man, for $20, $30. You gave this 20-year-old 132 years. By the grace of God, he served 22 years. He just got out two weeks ago. And I used to write about him all the time. He was my example. He got out under compassionate release, under the stacking law. Now, there's guys all over the country getting out under it, right? But there's also guys like Ian Owens, under the same law, his judge denied him in Michigan. No, because you got got a nasty judge. If you got a nasty judge, the law don't apply to you. Well, and that's the thing, too, is we have to find a way to make everything universal. It has to be universal. If a man in, in, in it should be like Walmart, for real. You know, if, if I can find somebody's sentence in California that has the same exact charge that I got, that got less time than me, then I should be able to get that sentence, too. You know, and, and it has to be universal. If somebody got out in Washington under compassionate release and, and their, theirs fits mine, then I should be able to get out on that, too. Well, Shouldn't, it should be like this. Because they had a problem with that. That's why they did the sentencing guidelines, right? And they were like, look, you know, we want everything to come together. And we want, you know, Joe Blow in California will get the same time as Jimmy Johnson over here in New York. Well, that's what the guidelines were for. Well, guess what? Didn't work out that way. You know, guys would have 262 months over here. And this guy would have 120 because they found ways to go under the guidelines or this guy cooperated. Really what it should be is this stuff should be retroactive, right? All all the first step stuff should be retroactive. And there's a whole lot more to do. But it it should be mandatory for the judge to do it as long as you have not been in a problem in prison. You're not running around stabbing people. You're not running around selling dope. You're not running around killing people. You're not raping people. Then you're entitled to the same thing that Jimmy Johnson got in New York. You're entitled to that in California. Because if you put it in the judge's discretion, it still comes down to the nasty judge. You got a nasty judge. You're not getting out. That's it. You're done. Sorry. Yeah, and that's so. and that's and that's the fact. But at the end of the day, because we're, we're coming up on an hour and a half, so yeah. At, at the end of the day, right? Again, like I say, with my program and 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 what I experienced through my change, you know, and 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 I'm only me. It's only me. And, and I changed the way that I changed and I saw things the way that I saw things and I see things the way that I see them now. At the end of the day, 99% of the problems that are in our lives, we bring upon ourselves, yeah. right? And, and I want my listeners and I want everybody that comes in contact with me to understand that before we start broadcasting blame anywhere, right? What accountability have we taken for for our lives and and our decisions? I was a drug dealer. I started selling drugs at at 13, 14 years old. 
Cause like you, I wanted nice things and I just didn't know how to get it. My parents didn't give me no skills. I did not know how to do anything. I didn't understand life. I got ended up wrapped up in a conspiracy, got all of this time. I spent the first six years of my life angry, blaming the prosecutor because, you know, she, she lied completely at trial, blaming the agent because he was going around showing my picture, getting people to jump on my case, you know, just, just everything. I was blaming everybody. And like you say, I was stuck, right? And, and after so many years, I started looking around and Chad, I'm like, man, I'm more intelligent than this. I'm better than this. I don't belong here. I'm seeing 40, 50 year old men running around with bandanas and their pants down around their ass, playing dominoes and, and yelling and not progressing as a human being. And, and I, when I started realizing like, in order to change, I have to change. Oh, right? no. Because we, when we go into prison, we are who we are in prison, who we were on the street. If we were a knucklehead on the street, we're going to be a knucklehead in prison, right? And what made me change was my daughter, right? And I, and I go into this in, in prior episodes, but my daughter one day at visit, and I was just tired of it. I was tired of her yelling that she wanted to stay with me. I just saw the pain that I was causing my family. And then it made me realize the pain that I've caused my family, you know, and everything that I've just put these people through. My mother, 70 years old, dragging my, you know, my two-year-old daughter through visitation by herself, you know, and I just felt like a piece of shit. Like, what have I done? And, and I changed. I stopped reading fiction. I stopped watching movies. I started picking up biographies. Like you say, I started going to the law library. I didn't know the first thing about my case. So I said, man, let me go learn about my case. You know, and I started learning conspiracy, you know, and, and, and I started teaching people and, and I progressed, you know, and one thing is coming home, somebody had asked me, man, you ever going to go back to selling drugs, you know? And I said, no, I'll never sell another drug in my life. And that's not because I don't want to go back to prison. I'll never commit another crime again, not because I don't want to go back to prison, right? But because I don't want to hurt people. I've hurt people. I am part of what we see today. I've helped destroy communities. I've, I've helped tear families apart. And I live with that every day, right? Every day I live with that. I think about the little girl that at her birthday party, her dad owed me $200. I didn't care. I ended up taking her TV as a birthday present because he owed me $200. This stuff haunts me today. And this is why I give back. And this is what I do. And I just want people to understand that we live in emotions every day, right? We're in our emotions every day. And we're allowing government to distract us with all of this propaganda that we see on TV to keep us in an emotional state. So we go out and we do the things that we do under emotions, under depression, under anger, right? At the end of the day, we have the choice. At the end of the day, we have the choice. Nobody can take our choice. I can either choose to be bad or I can choose to be good, you know? And this is, this is just who I am, brother. You know, I look at you, like I said, I have mad respect for you. I have mad love for you as a human being for going through what you've went through, enduring what you've endured, 
And people like you and me, only us can understand what we've been through, right? And we stick together in that, you know? And I love you for that. I love you. You're a soldier. You're a champion. And I, and I, and I wish you many blessings on your journey, brother. I appreciate you, man. And, you know, people that want to know about what's really going on in federal prison, like I said, I wrote a book, man. You know, I've read a lot of books, like you've probably read a lot of books. And a lot of them dudes never been in the places that I've been. They never experienced what I experienced. I was so tired of these books of guys talking about prison that never been nowhere. So I wrote that book, Blood on the Razor Wire. It takes you inside a violent federal prison. It takes you inside the criminal justice system. And it shows you what's really going on. We're not, we're not faking. It's everything in that book's 100% real, man. And it goes from prison to the street, back to prison, and how I ended up where I ended up. And I don't like to say it's a book about redemption because it's not. It's a book about what's real and raw. It's raw. It gives you, you know, perspective. Some people have, you know, told me, hey, man, the book was scary, but it was real. And I appreciate it. So tell people to check out that book, man. I appreciate you and the things that you do, man. You're a good where, can they, where, where can they get the, 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 the book at? You can get it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, Blood on the mm-hmm. Razor. That's the book. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And so the mission is they... not for me to make a bunch of money because I don't really make nothing off the book. Mm-hmm. But there's a bigger mission. Awareness. Um, that's there you go, man. And to, you know, maybe get a platform, turn the book into a movie. And then we can start getting a real message out there. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, you know it, I know it. Dudes walk out of prison and forget about you, forget about everybody inside. So even if it became a movie, it just gives me a bigger platform to do what I said I was going to do. And I'll continue to do it. And so I'm yes, with you. I and I got, and I got people behind me for that purpose, because again, I'm attacking reform from a whole different angle. I'm not talking to these politicians. I'm not talking to these legislators. I'm talking to my American blue collar worker that hates prisoners, that can't understand gang members, that go out and work every day hard and and can't understand why everybody can't do that. You're the person that I want to change because you're the person that's going to stand up and say, no, we need reform. The only way we're going to get reform is through our brothers and sisters out here on the street. You know, we have to change the stigma. So Amazon, Blood on the Wire, you have Blood a YouTube on the channel. Wire. Blood on the Razor Wire, uh, pardon me. You got a YouTube channel. Well, I got a YouTube channel. I'm going to have on the content up Monday. That's also Blood on the Razor Wire TV. And um, I'm getting everything set up now. If they want, they can go subscribe now. Pre-subscribe. I promise that they will not be disappointed. I'm going to take you inside the prison system. But the ultimate mission is to save kids from life imprisonment and premature death through our stories. Okay. You're going to have me on the show because I saved some of my glory for you. Yeah, 100%, man. 100% have you on the show. I appreciate you, man. All right, thank man. You. Take care, man. Stay blessed, right. partner. You and too. thank you for all your kind words, too, man. I heard you. I mean, thank, them. You. thank you. Thank you. All right, bye.